Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper, and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that, though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. This week, I have Sue Parker on the podcast with me. Sue is currently serving on the executive board of Mennonite Church USA as the denominational minister for leadership development. She's doing that as of March. Um, she is also the co-director for Reconciliation, which is a peace center in Los Angeles that specializes in conflict transformation and restorative justice for immigrant churches. Having said all of that, welcome, Sue. Thanks so much. Thanks for the invitation, Ben. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about yourself before we jump in? Yeah, maybe clarity that um, I am not on the executive board for MCUSA. I am executive board staff. I work for them. I get, uh, yeah, so gotcha. just to make sure that Important distinction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wonderful. So we can go ahead and uh, jump in then. The, the first question that I want us to wrestle with, you know, so identity is a topic that has always been important for me as a a black biracial man um, who was adopted by a white middle class blue collar family. As you can imagine, I have wrestled with my identity my entire life in a number Mm -hmm. of ways. Um, And so um, I'm wondering for you, what are some of the things that have been foundational uh, for your identity as you define it today? Yeah, like you, I've wrestled with identity um, pretty much all your life, I think, all my life, you know. Um, Growing up Asian American, Korean American, all these hyphenations um, makes you think about things. But my husband, who actually grew up in Korea and came to America when he was in his 20s, um, he never really talks about, like, am I Korean? Am I American? He's like, Sue, I never thought about these questions until I came to the States, right? Mm-hmm. Or got married to you. And, and so it's an interesting thought. Um, and so we put together kind of this framework that works, uh, that we often share is that shared stories shape our identity and our identity shapes our mission. So many times I have this conversation with so many Asian Americans and just with people of color. Um, I've thought about my, my identity and I was born in Korea. I came to the States 40 years ago. I'm 48. I'm not afraid to say it. Um, So I was eight. And so I was thinking about my memory in Korea. And the memory that I have is that uh, we lived in a half basement house. Um, And so I, I remember the smell of mold. And I remember like that half window where I could see kind of outside and that the curtains and just this fuzziness, like unclear, kind of half opaque kind of world through I through the, which I saw my world. And it made sense to me. I, I didn't understand how, why that was important or like why I ended up, you don't think about your home. It's like your home, right? Um, but later on when I was piecing things together, my father um, story kind of emerged. You know, we lived in a half basement home Um, because my father had suffered PTSD Mm. and 
because he had PTSD from the Korean War, which he was, uh, you know, he, he had to, uh, he was drafted when he was 17. Because um, in Korea, you're a year older. <laughs> like when you're born, you're one. So it was technically 18, right? Um, Korean age, he was 18 when he went to war. Um, and so I, you know, I think about that a lot because uh, I have 17-year-old and a 19-year-old uh, kids and, and a nine-year-old. Um, and so I think about this kid going to war, right? Um, soon after finding out your father died, um, you have four other siblings who are younger than you that you need to kind of take, you know, take leadership. And then a mother who's very incompetent. Like she really mm. didn't know what to do. Yeah. Didn't step up. And so with all that weight, um, he had suffered mental illness all of his life, but we didn't have like a terminology for it when he was growing up, right? Um, he was just off. And so because that happened and he's had episodes, I think before I was born or after I was born, that he couldn't hold a job. And because he couldn't hold a job, my mom worked. And um, because he's the oldest son, there's also obligations like my mother, my father, uh, and my mom took care of my grandmother in this half basement house. That shaped me, I think, more than I knew then, right? You don't know like what shapes you until later in life when you're piecing all these things together. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, that's what I remember. And then I think um, coming to the States, you know, the typical, I was the nerdy little girl with glasses and, you know, looking all fobbish. Um, and so, uh, but, but I, what I remember is like my teacher who knew that I wasn't dumb, I couldn't speak English, but I wasn't dumb. And so she helped, she made me do this mural for the school. And I, I that's where I spent a lot of my energy and people were like really shocked, right? This little second grader was um, putting together a mural for the school. And so, like, I always try to think about, like, what shapes you is, like, the racism, the crap that I experienced in life. But then there's also people who have always come alongside. It's kind of like the Mr. Rogers story, right? Like, he's yeah. like, for the helpers, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Those, like, they're always juxtaposed. There's always people who, in my life, who have hurt me, who have traumatized or traumatized experiences. But then there's always people that have come alongside to remind me who I am and who I am not. And so, um, yeah, those, I think uh, those like stories kind of helped me to uh, know who I am. And then later on, gosh, jump in the 90s and early 90s. Um, I was, I, I'm from Los Angeles. Um, I was in college when the 92 uh, LA riot broke out. Ooh. And I was in college. I was in, I was a sophomore, and um, I saw my city going flames. I saw Koreatown going flames. Um, and imagine my father, who had PTSD, right? Um, now he needs to protect his store. And all these people that we don't we don't even talk about mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many things that we don't talk about, which is you know, in, especially in Asian immigrant um, communities, and all these people who have had probably PTSD are all, they somehow got a gun and they're all standing on top of their buildings trying to protect the only thing that they have. 
right? And that's like really scary if you think about it, right? Yeah. And what I saw was how the media portrayed us as these like crazy, you know, angry Asian people on top of stores. And they totally did not talk about uh, racism. They didn't talk about police brutality. Like the whole story of Rodney King kind of got lost after the riot. And so um, they came with their microphones to campuses like UCLA where I was at. And they're like, so what's going on? And we didn't know how to tell our story, you know, that shared story. We knew like the story of my parents kind of, you know, and we knew the story of, but we didn't know like, the story of the city. We didn't know how to frame our story within the economic, racial structure, the political structure of our city. And so um, I realized, oh my gosh, people don't understand what we're trying to say. And we don't really know what we're trying to say in the larger context of things. And so um, that also shaped me. And I realized, and then I thought, okay, they're making this into a black Asian issue. But the people who are really looting are like Latinos that I also see. <laughs> like, what, where, where does this come from, right? I'm like, how come that story's not being shared? And so, like, I couldn't understand all the complexities. And I think that was when I realized that there is a calling for me to be part of a ministry of reconciliation. So um, that also shaped me greatly. Yeah. Again, in looking back, you, you know, you don't realize all these these things that are shaking you but as I look back I'm like those those are pretty central yeah man that's you have a lot of powerful um narratives that are wound up in your story and in your identity formation um and and I think some of the terms you use like the, the idea that shared stories shape our identity is so powerful um mm. the work part of the work that I'm doing right now is helping to encourage and empower people to share their stories because not everyone thinks they have a story worth sharing, but they mm. do. Um, and so, so this notion, you know, that our stories shape our identity, not only our stories, but the stories we share, right? Uh, the stories that, that define our shared context, shape our identity, and thus also shape our mission. I, I just, I love that. Mm. I'm glad that's helpful. That's really helped me in propelling the work that we do. And like, yeah, the importance of telling our stories. You know, like my son and my daughter, when they were going through their college applications, like, I have nothing to share. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? You have lots of stories to share, right? <laughs> Let me tell you the ways, right? And, and so I realized that we don't realize the power of the stories that we share. And then I'm also realizing as they're telling their story, that their stories not the same story that like, it's the same thing. But I'm like, wait a minute, you're missing this part. And they're like, no, mom you're missing this part. So right. it's really important for us to, um, to uncover and make our stories whole and fuller and deeper by sharing them. Absolutely. So I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Mm, thank you. Thank you. You touched on something near the end of uh, the first question. You said that's what made you realize you were called to the ministry of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm reconciliation is a word that, to be honest, I don't generally like to use um, because yeah. um, the people that use it don't do it justice, in my opinion, yeah. uh, more often than not. Um, there are churches that I've worked with that are predominantly white churches, usually, that talk about 
uh, ministry of reconciliation or race reconciliation, right? And it, it typically, from my perspective, just means smoothing things over, coming together, singing Kumbaya, right? And worshiping mm-hmm. Jesus because there's neither Jew nor Greek, da 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 right? Mm-hmm. We're not actually addressing any of the the divisions that have um, created fault lines in our, in our country or in our context. And so I'll say all that to say, for you, from your context, from the work that you do, how do you understand reconciliation and what does that work look like? Yeah, excellent question. Um, reconciliation is a terminology that's in the Bible. And so we have to wrestle with that. Um, even if I don't like it, <laughs> it says he has entrusted us the ministry of reconciliation. And so, and then I think about like who began that work and it's, it's God, right? Through Jesus. And so the power dynamic of all of these things um, And if you're talking about from Jesus's like human context, yeah. How do you reconcile with people of the Roman empire? Right? Like, so, so if he has given us that ministry, then we also have to, it's not like uh, it's just a convoluted, like a very safe word. I I think we have to start thinking about what did that mean? Did, Did that not apply or does that not apply to us because the social context is different? And so how, how does that word work? And so I, I wrestle with that word all the time. Um, it is, yeah, and again, we have to look at all of the social constructs of everything, right? And, and, and I think at the end of the day, Jesus has reconciled all things. And when we talk about what does that mean, and then how do we work towards that, that can look different in different contexts, right? But I think for us to negate that word, because it doesn't fit into our frame of our theology or our social context or words that work for us now, I think um, is easy. Er, then I think just trying to deal with it. But again, at the same time, I totally agree with you. When a person says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for all the, you know, sad things and the bad things that hurt you, you know, I'm like, no, that's not, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a road. It's a roadmap mm. for us to get to. Yeah. It is not a, a, a destination, right? Yeah. And I think for us to, uh, to wrestle with that, I think is really important. You know, as I pull up reconciliation on Google, the first definition that comes up is to, uh, it's a verb, to restore friendly relations between, right? Um, and so to restore implies that there once maybe were friendly relations, but they've been broken, right? And that's not always true in every context, but there's, clearly been a degradation of relationship as it's designed to be. Um, And and so whenever there's a degradation of relationship in a a romantic relationship, a friendship, a family relationship, you have to, there's, there's certain steps you've got to follow, right? You've got to, to name uh, what happened. If, if there's error on your part, name the error, apologize, repent, and then work to remedy um, any, any situations or contexts that are continuously causing harm. And I think a lot of that gets lost in the talk of reconciliation sometimes. And I think that's why it's important. And that's the reason why my husband and I do a lot of restorative justice work. And we do a lot of training workshops as well. Because without all of those blocks, uh, reconciliation is cheap. Or the talk of it is very cheap. And so what does justice mean when we're talking about reconciliation? Because, you know, like the country where I was born, right? There's serious work that needs to be done with the U.S. Right now, the U.S. and North Korea, they want to reconcile, right? They know, they know that they, there has been 
broken this the last 70 years and they yep. want to reconcile, right? And here's the US saying, nope, there's still a lot at stake here, right? And so how do we reconcile with the US, which is so much more powerful? And when there are two brothers and sisters who are trying to reconcile this imposing power, how do we reconcile with the system? It's complex. And so I cannot take that that um, that lightly. But there are different components that needs to be within the work of reconciliation, for sure. You touched on power dynamics. And I'm wondering, as you uh, and your husband do work uh, regarding restorative justice, how do you talk about power dynamics? How do you how do you train people to approach power dynamics when it comes to restoring relationship and healing? Yeah, well, we have to talk about power. And that's like hard, right? Because a lot of us, I think as immigrants too, we, we talk about, we don't, we feel like we don't have a lot of power, um, especially in the larger context of things. And I think that's where um, racism really works well, right? Uh, we, we divide each other um, rec- instead of like, who has more power, who has more piece of the pie, right? And I think, um, first of all, when we, so if we're talking about racial issues and power, I, we try to help Asian Americans recognize um, their internalized racism, right? Model minority myths, um, how that has played for and against us, right? And so that's one, one thing that we talk about when we're talking about racial reconciliation. We have privilege and we have also um, been victims and we need to work with African-Americans and other people of color like that's one way that we can talk about power. Um, in Asian culture, there's also uh, power between men and women that's still very, very strong. I think, I mean, in the US as well, but I think, so we have to recognize and name that. And it's so hard, especially in the church, right? And so, so there's the naming, I think in power, um, that's still hard to do. And so um, I think power begins with naming. To know that they, and I think that that dispels some of uh, some of the power <laughs> by naming it. Yeah. Yes, power begins with naming. Mm. You got all kinds of great quotes in here, Sue. This is yeah. really awesome. As you think about your context as a Korean American, as a Mennonite, as a leader, however you want to think about who you are. Where do you feel you belong? Mm. That's a hard question. Um, and again, this place of belonging, where do you call home, mm. right? Um, it's such a hard question for many of us. Um, I think for a lot of us who have multiple identities, um, that, that belonging to, to the body of Christ is easier mm. for us to embrace in a way because we don't quite belong here. We yeah. don't really have a place. Like when I'm here, I'm the perpetual foreigner, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids are here. If they look like me, they're going to be a foreigner, yeah. a perpetual foreigner. <clears throat> if I go to Korea, I know that I'm not Korean as well, right? Mm. Um, and so like that feeling of always being in the liminal spaces um, 
gives us like, where do I belong? And this larger understanding, I think it helps us to see that we, we are not only in this local context of, and local identity, <clears throat> but we belong to something bigger, that we do belong to something that's unseen. Um, it's easier for us to embrace that because we can't quite place ourselves here. And that's like a gift and a curse, right? Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes we're just floating around. We don't quite belong anywhere. And so like, you know, when Mennonites talk about like their great grandmother, this is a furniture built made by like <clears throat> my great grandmother, you know, who was born in a certain place in a certain time. And this, was, you know, this yep. furniture was built by, you know, so-and-so and they can name the place and the wood and all of that. I'm like, we don't have that. Mm. Um, and there's a part of me that, that kind of feels that loss, recognizing my parent, my grandmother had nothing, right? Yeah. We don't have photos of her when she was young. <clears throat> but it's also a, a gift in a way, I think, because I can connect with a larger body of, of Christ, larger um, understanding my my understanding of church is not just local it's this global um church and i can connect with people i think um in a way and adapt quicker because of that that reality that that i have yeah that that resonates with me um you know for me growing up the the <laughs> church that i grew up in was very much a safe haven for me, a place that I could experience uh, God and God's love uh, when I couldn't experience it for myself, you know, when I was still healing. And so the idea that the church, the congregation, the body of Christ gives us access to a place of belonging that is greater than us individually or greater than our immediate social context, uh, I think deeply resonates. And, and there's also something else that I read recently from Brene Brown that resonates in her latest book, uh, Braving the Wilderness, I think she talks about belonging to yourself and mm -hmm. that really hit home for me um mm. you know the idea that i can be in any number of spaces and not feel like i truly belong um but i can look within and find that that i am me and the space that i occupy is my own space right and i don't have to be anyone other than myself and there's a little bit of freedom and, and a little bit of hope that comes with that and a little bit of strength as well. And so um, I'm wondering if you've heard that before or how that might resonate with you. I have, I have. And that, that really resonates, deep, that resonates deeply. But a part of me is also recognizing that I do have this collective culture in me, mm. right? And so part of me understands that I want to go there, but part of me feels like that's also... I don't want that to totally uh, colonize who I am either. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to break from the tradition and the beauty of the collective identity that I, that I'm given that I don't always necessarily embrace. Mm -hmm. But when I think of this, yeah, like there is just me and me alone and finding proficiency in that, there's also part of me going like, no, but there's this other tradition, this shared um, identity that I don't want to let go. So, so I'm always wrestling with those kinds of, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's something that I wrestle with as well, which yeah. is good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Self-awareness, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, no, so part of the wrestling for me is, is what it means to 
have the blood of both the um, survivor and the oppressor running through my veins, right? How do I how do I reconcile that, and how do I live and move through the world in such a way so that my identity is as authentic as possible, um, recognizing the limitations of the cultural context that I live in, right? So even though I'm biracial, I can't legitimately identify as white. It's just it's just not permitted, you know. Um, but I still have white family. Uh, I still have been shaped by white identity, um, and and so so what is what does that mean? And I still have privilege, right? Uh, light skin privilege, male privilege, right? There are still ways in which I move through the world and I have privilege or I contribute to um, harm that is caused to others purposely or accidentally. Um, and so uh, I have to wrestle with that. And as I think about where we are in our world and, you know, I've got friends that still deny, uh, friends is, I use that term very loosely, um, that deny white privilege still, you know, and they have trouble wrapping their minds around it. Um, and and I'm sitting here wondering how is it so hard? Like if I can acknowledge my privilege in the ways that I've done harm, what? Why are you struggling with this? You know, um, I don't even know if there's a question in there, but that's just my stream of thought as as we were talking. Well, I mean, and and that's the gift that we have of these bridge builders or people who have multiple identities is that we cannot not think about these things, right? Whereas the privilege that they have is that they don't have to wrestle with those things. Yeah. It's kind of like even in my husband's context, he's like, I never have to think about the fact that I'm Korean until I came here, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the privilege of who you are. I think a lot of white people, they don't have to engage in that kind of, that reflection that we do all the time, right? I mean, you know, Du Bois talks about double consciousness. It's something that we, have to always do even as you know that that term is really for it began for you know for african-americans but i so resonate with that kind of that terminology because we filter i self filter my my understanding of myself through the dominant culture hmm. whereas i think a lot of people who are in the dominant culture again white males they're like why are you doing this to us right, <laughs> right. this is the normalcy of of our lives dudes you know like um and that's hard it's laborious for them whereas it's become a way of life for us uh so i'm going to do a a uh, really unexpected pivot this was not in the list of questions i sent you um but again as i'm thinking about layers of systemic injustice the one that is most immediately coming to my mind right now has to do with patriarchy and sexism mm -hmm. um so you know where you and i can connect and relate in terms of being bridge builders racially and, and ethnically. I imagine our experiences in terms of um, gender differences have been probably drastically different, right? Mm -hmm. um, in, in culture, in the church. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can speak to um, maybe the uniqueness of your experience as a woman, either, either in the church or in the line of work that you do, or even more specifically as an um, Asian American woman, you know, I hear a lot mm. of um, African American women speak, white women, even um, mm. Latinas, but I don't often hear the Asian American woman's voice, uh, possibly because I don't have that many in my circle or I'm just not looking mm -hmm. for it. I don't know. Um, but regardless, I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to what your experience as an Asian American woman has been like. Yeah, thanks for that question out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Invisible Truths. <laughs> True. Um, I am a woman. I am Asian American. You know, I did not grow up in the church 
um, with anybody who was a pastor who was a woman who was Asian. But I didn't have a model for that. And so I grew up, um, so this is just one aspect of my, sure. my identity, right? As an Asian American pastor, a woman pastor. Um, and so I never envisioned myself being a pastor. And I remember being asked to come to this, uh, I think it was a, a different denomination and they wanted me to come. They wanted to visit our church and for me to talk about my journey of being an, a, you know, a pastor. And I'm like, I'm going to surprise them by saying like, I really didn't have a plan. Mm. It's not like this calling that I felt and I felt, you know, like this is, and I fought for it. Cause I know a lot of people who have also gone through that. Yeah. I never did because I couldn't even imagine myself in that role. And the ones who were kind of were a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They're up in the mountains and like prayer mountains. I don't know about you, if you know about these prayer mountain experiences in Korean like culture. Uh They're like, yeah. Anyway, you could look up prayer mountain. I'll Google that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's either like Husky voice and like, super charismatic, you know, just pray in the mountains all day kind of people, or nobody looked normal and like wanted to go into ministry. And so I've always um, limited myself. But what was really beautiful is like my husband who's from Korea, right? He's always seen me as um, a pastor. Mm-hmm. Like You need to be, or you need to be credentialed. I'm like, no, I'm fine. I can, you know, he's like, so you need to be credentialed. You need to... <laughs> And, you know, we, we, you know, planted a church together and all kinds of things. But I've always wanted to play like the supportive role. And my husband's the one who's like, no, you're the leader. You, you know, co-partner with me and all kinds of things. And so I am really grateful to my husband yeah. who has helped me, like he, he helped me to see who I am um, when I couldn't see myself in that role. And so I think representation matters. Um, and I think that's why it was so powerful for me to speak at Menocon. I didn't want to. Um, but when at the convention, when they've asked me, I said, gosh, I know there are going to be that many Asians out there in our, in our, you know, amongst the participants. But if I can reach like one person out there, an Asian American girl, a woman to say like, yeah, oh, there's one. She doesn't look that crazy, you know, and, and like, I'm like, that will be tremendous. Yeah. And no, after I spoke, there were a lot of great people that came up and talked to me and stuff, but there were these two girls that came and they were Laotian Mm. background and they came up to me and they shared how, how wonderful it was to hear me speak because they said I could, I could relate to your story. And I said, thank you, Laura. That's, that's what I needed. It was more, you know, affirming than anyone else who came up to me and said that kind of thing. Um, And so this question of, yeah, Asian American woman in leadership is something that I'm learning how to embrace. Mm. You know, I've always wanted to, I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm fine being a teacher. These are my gifts. I want to be the supportive role. But I feel like God has always been like, "Uh uh-uh. This is, yeah. this is where I'm hold. This is where I want you to be. And it's taking me so long to be where I am. But once I was credentialed and once I was ordained, God has opened up so many opportunities for me to speak, to write, to like, yeah, even be on this podcast. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I'm learning how to lean into 
into this because it's something that I, I've stumbled into. Um, and I'm meeting more people like me because I'm in this role, right? And it's wonderful because I'm finding that uh, like there's a group of uh, Presbyterian pa female, like women pastors that meet. And we're meeting like a Korean restaurant somewhere in K-Town or Pasadena or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we just talk about our stuff and I don't really know them well, but I'm like, wow, these are strong women. Yeah. voices that I'm learning to uh, listen and, and they could resonate with me. I could resonate with them. I'm also learning from people of color in our Mennonite gatherings. Mm. Um, I learned so much from that. It doesn't always have to be being in an Asian American context, but for me to be one of the few Asian Americans in our people of color gathering for the Mennonites, um, it also helps me to understand who I am, who I can identify with, who I could really call my my people you know yeah. and um and work alongside them um in ways that i can't always do with the more dominant groups yes to all of that um it was so affirming to me the day after you preached delegate assembly i had stopped you and i was planning on asking you about the podcast and you um said something to me just to the effect that i've got people in my corner you know um mm -hmm. and that I, I can't tell you just how much that that meant to me because a mm -hmm. lot of times in those spaces, just seeing another person of color is like finding a fresh sip of water, right? Let alone talking to them, let alone knowing that they've got your, you know, it's, there's something um, restorative and grounding. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Let me give you one more story that as I, you're talking, it reminded me. Um, so my husband and I were invited to, pastor a co-pastor a church mm -hmm. a predominantly white aging church hmm. um well they invited him <laughs> okay they invited him and then we said well how about my wife and i doing this together right and so they really wanted my husband and so they said sure they've never had this is like you know the church has been around for almost 80 years Mm. Um, in California, that's a really long tradition, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, they didn't know what to do with me. Yeah. And I think they were willing to say yes, because I was Asian. Mm. There were assumptions. They had assumptions about us, just as we had assumptions about them. Yeah. I, they had assumptions. We had assumptions because it's a Mennonite church. Right. We have these assumptions of like a certain theology that they would have right mm -hmm. they had certain assumptions about us because we're immigrants so they had certain assumptions about our theology that it would be more conservative that it would be a certain way mm -hmm. and so when they saw someone like me and i wasn't this white woman who looked like a feminist with a big you know like <laughs> empowering bold slogans on my shirt or really cool earrings or really cool hair. They just thought like, why not? Right. Mm -hmm. And so for a while, my husband and I, when we were, they would say, yeah, he's our pastor. He's our pastor. And after a year, they would say, they're our pastors. Mm. And so I think because, you know, they, they saw my gifts yeah. like it or not. Right. And so it's this, as an Asian American female woman pastor, I have these spaces that I can go in that I don't look so harmful 
you know, or dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it gives me space for doing some creative stuff yeah. that I, again, something that I didn't plan to do, right? I'm, I'm learning how to, in a church that would be very, very much um, against a white woman coming into ministry as their lead pastor. Sure. So, yeah. Sure. That's just <laughs> And speaking of just like you're having space to do creative things, um, I wanted to say that I think one of the more powerful moments of the night that you preached at convention um, was when you and, and I forget the young lady's name who Dona. sang. What was it? Dona. Dona, yes. When you and Dona sang in Korean, mm. that was so powerful because it, it instantly um, brought something to my attention that I wasn't even aware of. And that's the, the centrality of English, right? Like something... Mm that I take for granted, you know, mm -hmm. you all named it and moved it out of the way for a second to create space as a reminder that no, God flows in other mm -hmm. languages, in other cultures and other contexts. And here we're going to demonstrate this. And it was just this, such a powerful, beautiful moment in, in, in mm -hmm. such a subtle way. Um, and so I think being able to, to have space to use those creative gifts that you have can be really, really powerful and can disarm people in ways that I think our words or our writing often can't. Thanks. That's, I didn't even thought about that. So I appreciate you naming that. And, um, and again, this is the, this is the tension that I have in my identity is, you know, in America, if you know how to speak another language and you're a person of color, they make you less than, you're not fully American, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and so I really appreciate you affirming that that, that was a real gift. Mm -hmm. And I had to feel, I had to come to a place in my life where I felt comfortable speaking Korean in public. Yeah. Because when I was younger, I didn't want to even show that I spoke Korean because that makes me less American. Yep. Like that's how insecure I was with my identity. Now I come to a point where I go, this is a language, it's a, it's a gift um, to me, and it is a gift that you can hear it, you know, just yeah. like when my friend who, you know, at her husband's funeral, she said, oh, my husband would write letters to me, and, you know, he was white, mm -hmm. he was, oh, but he wrote so beautifully in Spanish, and he goes, oh, I wish you guys could read it, and if you guys don't know Spanish, I feel sorry for you. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, it's such a romantic language. And I, yeah. thought, I loved her boldness and her confidence and her, her love for her language, yeah. you know, yeah. and her culture. And that did not make her less American. Absolutely. So, yeah. So thanks for affirming that. Mm, of course. Of course. Um, okay. We'll transition to our final question. Most likely no, no promises. Um, our country is in tenuous times politically. Um, and uh, I've seen, especially with the president's recent Twitter attacks on the four um, democratic Congresswomen known as the squad. Um, a lot of uh, friends of mine have like voiced their despair, their discouragement, their frustration. Just I've been reflecting on that. I'm aware of how much I sometimes avoid the headlines because I just don't have the energy for it. Um, mm. And I find that within myself, there's there's the same despair and discouragement, and there's also this um, resilient hope that will not go away. Um, mm. That kind of shapes how I uh, am holding vision for the country, for our people, for people of color in the future. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you can can talk about what shapes your vision um, 
for the future, I don't even mean just for the country because the country hasn't always been for us. So I'm not even thinking about for the country. I'm, I'm thinking about for, for the people that you identify as your people, for the space that you belong. And what is your vision um, for how that, those spaces, that, those contexts might endure? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> just a light question to end our talk together. <laughs> I think immediately when you ask uh, that question, I think about my children. What kind of country will they live in? What kind of church will they be part of? So it's very concrete for me. It's not, and there's a sense of urgency. It's not um, some, and I think you have a kid. I'm about to. <laughs> I'm about to have a kid. Yeah. And so this is very real. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not something that I take lightly. Um, you know, and my daughter and my son, they're very, they ask the hard questions. You know, they talk about environmental impact that our previous generation has made where my daughter says, mom, our generation can't look at like the animal channel mm. because we're like half of it's dead or it's going to die. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never thought of it that way. I'm like, I don't watch it because I don't think it's that exciting, you know, whereas they can't watch it because it's depressing. Yeah. And so that sense of urgency about what kind of world, and it's not even like hundred years. It's like the next generation. Will, will there even be like, Will there be a world that's sustainable? Will we, we have water? Yeah. Will, will we, we have a democratic country? Like those are real. It's heavy. I don't have, <laughs> I don't have an answer, but I said, you know, I will do what I can given my time and given my influence for such a time, I will do my best to address these things. My sphere of influence is in the church right now. I don't know where I'll be next year or the year after, but for now, I will pay attention to these things. When, when a president says, go back to your country, and there's a party that will not denounce or, you know, criticize him, I'm like, something is terribly and dangerously wrong. And that we are looking at this as a bipartisan line of who comments and who doesn't. This is, this is dangerous. But I just say, I will respond. I will respond when somebody says, go back to your country. I will respond when a child is separated. I will respond when there is a world that's falling apart, you know, like, and I can't do much, but given where I am in my social political um, influence that I have now, I will do whatever I can. Um, and, and that step, I think, hopefully will inspire other people. I'm going to take steps to uh, respond, not react, but respond to the calling that God has given me for such a time. Your words carry a, a holy gravity, Sue, hmm. a holy gravity. Um, and I, I appreciate the distinction you made between reacting and responding, because um, hmm. I think it's easy to react, but responding requires... Um, preparation it requires strategy it requires intention um and and a goal in mind you know anyone can react but not everyone can respond and and we definitely need um a stronger and swifter response man as you were talking i was thinking about um the blood that runs in my veins you know and and 
thinking about my Hungarian ancestors, my English ancestors, my West African ancestors, and how in times of crisis, um, they all likely responded to protect their family, to protect their country, you know, to, to survive, right? And so regardless of which side of history they were on at any point in time, I think the best traits of all of my people are to respond um, when there is a significant threat um, to the community, to to what is loved, to what is precious and sacred, uh, and so I believe it, it's it's the best of all those parts of me that that mm. are called to to stand like you, and to lend my voice, lend my talents, and to respond, knowing that victory isn't guaranteed. You know, um, my kid might not be able to live a full eighty year life; it, mm. it's just not guaranteed. But there is no other option but to respond. And I think also this is something that we think about for the future, but I see so many people now who are facing that now, mm-hmm. right? There's water shortage. Climate change is, is affecting their lives right now. Yeah. And so like standing in solidarity and, and recognizing that that problem is not just over there, that it directly impacts me and making those connections. Um, I think it's integral. Um, when I think about even family separations, you know, and I go, how, how do I make that relevant to people who are living the American dream as, a, as Asian American, who do have the big houses and that have succeeded and are living the American life, right? Like, how do I, how do I help them connect, right? And I, we have to remember, like, our families are still separated because of mm-hmm. war, mm-hmm. you know, like, and so what's happening at the borders matter to us now. We know the impact of the war and how it impacted our life. So like we need to know our stories, <laughs> going back yeah. to the short stories. If we don't know our history, um, then we don't know who we're about now. And I think it goes full circle back to what we had shared in the beginning, right? And then if we don't know who we are, then we don't know why we're living, right? Mm. And so it goes back to that. I think that model of understanding where we stand in history and what we're willing to pass down. Thank you for listening to episode 11 of the Invisible Truths podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and subscribe so that you are notified when new episodes are published. To learn more about Sue's work with reconciliation, click the link in the podcast episode description. I also want to announce that I'll be coming out with two new series for this podcast sometime in the near future, and I'm excited about them, so I want to give you a heads up, that way you know when they're coming. The first is a series called Normal Narratives. Now, this was inspired because I have heard from many different people in many different walks of life that they either don't have a story to tell, or they don't think anyone will care to listen to what they have to say. And I don't believe that could be any further from the truth. The thing is, everyone has a story. And in everyone's story, there is power and wisdom. Sometimes we just need a little coaching to learn how to share what is within our story. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reach out to some folks and coach them through what it means to tell a segment of their story and to unpack the deep life lessons that are held within. So if you're interested, reach out to me. It will not be an arduous process. It will be gentle and loving and hopefully inspiring. So I hope that some of you are interested. I've already got a few people I'm going to be reaching out to to invite them on the podcast to share their stories. The second thing is going to be a series called 
Real Talk Relationships, in which I invite couples onto the podcast to just get real, get raw, and get honest about what their relationships look like. Uh, Brooke and I will be coming on and doing a couple episodes. I've got a couple other couples lined up. And so if you're interested and you're a couple and you think it'd be cool to just share your experience, to kind of dispel this fairy tale myth of what a relationship should or shouldn't look like, reach out to me. I would love to talk about having you on the podcast and to do it an episode or two for this Real Talk Relationship series. Once again, thank you so much for listening to episode 11 of the Invisible Truths podcast. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.